I too want to add my Thanksgiving greetings to you this morning. Thank you for making corporate worship part of your Thanksgiving week activities. Last week we focused on the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn there for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Remember in the New Living Translation it reads, For we are his masterpiece. And this week I received some feedback. The individual thanked me for my message and admitted that, that they had never before thought of themselves as God's masterpiece. And yet that's exactly what verse 10 tells us. We are God's masterpiece. Individually and collectively as the Rock Community Church. Happy Thanksgiving. But that verse doesn't end there. For we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, we're not like pieces of art that God puts in a display case or hangs on the wall so that all can admire them. No, we are new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Created to do. To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works that we are invited and empowered to do. And notice how verse 10 ends. Walk in them. It's actually an imperative. A command. Walk in them. So let me ask you. How are you doing? How is your walk in good works going? On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being MIA, missing in action, and 10 being exceeding all expectations. Or maybe you need to circle the N-A, capital N-A, at the end of the continuum. Not applicable. Because you're not God's masterpiece. You have yet to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1 says. Listen carefully now as I read from Philippians chapter 2. Beginning halfway through verse 12. Work out. Now notice it's not work for, but work out your salvation by walking in the good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, we're invited and empowered to be involved in this ongoing creation of of God's masterpiece. What an amazing opportunity. Your salvation and my salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. It's a God story. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one, absolutely no one, can boast. Whenever an individual is saved, it is always a God story from beginning to end. And sometimes it seems like we treat salvation as if it was the end of the story. Like we've crossed some kind of imaginary finish line. When in fact, it is the beginning of the story. Our salvation puts us on the starting line of what is intended to be an amazing walk in the good works which God has prepared in advance for you and I to do. But that requires us to accept God's invitation and empowerment to work out our salvation. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Working out our salvation. For it is God who is at work in your life and in mine. By the end of this sermon, I want us to be absolutely convinced that we can take each one individually, can take the next step in working out your salvation and my salvation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. On these days when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we've been stepping back from our, the series of messages that we've been involved in and been working our way through this book of Romans, month by month. The book of Romans can be outlined using five themes or five topics, all beginning with the letter S. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul addresses man's problem, sin. In chapters 4 and 5, it's God's work of salvation. In chapters 6 through 8, it's sanctification. And that's just a, a big word for what is being described in Philippians chapter 2, verses 13, verses 12 and 13. Working out our salvation. Chapters 9 and 11, it's all about the sovereignty of God. And chapters 12 and 16, it's where the rubber meets the road. It's service. It's 
the practical application and implication of all that Paul has said in chapters 1 through 11. How it impacts your life and mine in real practical ways. So there you have a good outline for the book of Romans as you approach it. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. This morning we want to focus on the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6, the beginning of the sanctification section. Please stand with me if you're able and we'll read these first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. Allow me to read them for us. Beginning at verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would be no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's word to us this morning. You may be seated. Father, your word is nourishment for our souls. In the words of the Apostle Peter, For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal, living word of God. Like newborn babies, you must crave sp pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment. 
as we consider these verses from your eternal living word, Father. Prepare us to take the next steps in working out our salvations. Give us confidence, not in ourselves, but in you and your word. Keep us from fear and discouragement. Enable us to do the good works which you have prepared for us to do. So that we become ambassadors for Christ. The ambassadors you intend us to become. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I received an email in my inbox earlier this week. And attached to it was a, an article titled, Transformation Takes Time. And the subtitle of the article was, Learning to Trust the Slow Work of God. The author quotes a friend near the beginning of the article. And I'm quoting, This agency, and they were referring to a Christian spiritual formation organization. This agency means well, Brian said. But they keep suggesting headlines like four easy steps to spiritual growth. If we want to be accurate, Brian says, what we really need is how to become more like Jesus in 70 challenging years. The author goes on, I laughed, but I knew he was right. The longer I, I've lived, the more I've begin, become convinced of two important things. First, it's truly possible for, human, for a human being to undergo genuine spiritual transformation. It's possible. Evidenced in tangible, positive changes in character, behavior, and inner peace. And secondly, such transformation almost always happens at a pace slower than we would expect or desire. Do I hear an amen? Sanctification or transformation, becoming more like Jesus, is absolutely possible. But it's slow going. And it's a process that is going to last for the rest of our lives. One of the favorites back in my youth group days was a chorus by the title, Little by Little. The words go like this, little by little every day, little by little in every way, Jesus is changing me. He's changing me. Since I made that turnabout face, I've been growing in his grace. Jesus is changing me. And then the chorus goes, he's changing me, my precious Jesus, or my precious Savior. I'm not the same person that I used to be. Well, it's slow going, but still there's a knowing that someday, perfect, I will be. That chorus is describing 
what theologians refer to as progressive or practical sanctification. But there's also a positional sanctification. You'll find a graph. Maybe some of you picked up that handout when you came out, came in this morning. It'll also be on the screen behind me. I hope it's helpful. Notice positional sanctification. It's indicated by that red arrow going straight up. Positionally, at the moment of faith, where we begin to trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we are justified and declared righteous by God. That's amazing. Again, from last week's sermon, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You'll remember from last week, those who were here. Made us alive, raised us up, and seated us in the heavenlies. At the moment we accept Christ as our Savior, a great exchange takes place. Christ takes our sin and says, that's what I died for on Calvary. And we are clothed in his righteousness. That, beloved, is positional sanctification. So God looks at you and he sees you through the shed blood of Christ, perfect, declares you righteous. But when I look at me, and when you look at you, and sometimes when you look at me, well, we're just not there yet. You're not about to declare me righteous. The reality is we all suffer from this sin hangover. Old habits die hard, don't they? And the journey to becoming who we really are in Christ, well, it's all kinds of ups and downs, thrilling victories and agonizing defeats, three steps forward and two steps back. That's the squiggly line on the graph. But notice, little by little, for the next 70 years, or however long your life lasts, there's a knowing that someday perfect you will be, and either the rapture will take place, or you will take your last breath, step into heaven, and be glorified. That is progressive sanctification. We're all working out what God is working in us. Now back to Romans chapter 6. Did you notice where the Apostle Paul begins this discussion on sanctification? The first thing that the Apostle Paul addresses is the possibility of gaining freedom 
from the power of sin. That is, after all, what sanctification is all about. Gaining freedom from sin. And in these first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6, Paul gives us two things that we must know and two things that we must do in order to gain freedom from sin. First, what you must know to gain freedom from the power of sin is presented in verses 1 through 10. That word know, by the way, shows up in verse 3. In verse 6 and 9, you may want to circle them, it's knowing. It's not about feelings or maybes or perhaps or hopes and dreams. It's about knowing the truth. And the first thing that you must know is that continuing in sin will not be rewarded. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Paul was anticipated their twisted logic based on what he had said earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Notice that verse. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. In fact, a more literal translation would be super abundant. So the people receiving this letter might say, well, okay, then more I sin, the more I receive God's grace. Therefore, let's keep on sinning. And that's exactly what we do in our twisted thinking. When we emphasize grace, the grace of God, which should be emphasized, but when we do that, some people will take liberties and take advantage of God's grace and indulge in activities and practices that actually undermine sanctification, derail us becoming more like Christ. Paul anticipates that response. And offers the strongest of denials that he could in the Greek language. There's all kinds of translations. May it never be is in my translation, New American Standard Bible. In ESV and NIV, it's by no means, all with an exclamation mark at the end of it. King James, God forbid. J.B. Phillips, what a ghastly thought. Don't even entertain such thinking. Continuing in sin will not be rewarded. This dog don't hunt. There's no lasting advantage to continuing in sin. None. Furthermore, continuing in sin is absurd. It's ridiculous. Look at the next rhetorical question at the end of verse 2. 
How shall we who died to sin live in it? Notice the subtle change from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Dead in our trespasses and sin to being dead to sin. It is illogical that those who died in relation to sin should continue to live in sin. Makes no sense whatsoever. And notice he did not say it is impossible for us to live in sin. He's not saying that sin is dead or that it's been completely eradicated from our lives, from our existence. But believers are dead to sin in the sense that they should not continue to live in it. It should not characterize our lives. Habitual and inescapable sin should not characterize our lives. That would make no sense at all. So continuing in sin is absurd because you're dead to sin. Verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. These verses are often read at believers' baptism services. Believers' baptism is a personal, public confession of something that has taken place in an individual's life prior to baptism. They have taken that step where they've begun trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And baptism by immersion is the best picture or visual aid of what takes place in a person's life spiritually at that moment of conversion. And that is what Paul is thinking about in this passage of Scripture. As a believer, you are united or you are identifying with Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. With the one who knew no sin but became sin for us so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Continuing in sin is absurd. Because you are united with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Notice too the purpose statement right at the end of verse 4. So we too might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 reads, affirms the same thing. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Continuing in sin is absurd because you are living a new life in Christ. 
verses 5 through 7. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that your old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Our old self was crucified with him. The old self is referring to that person who is dead in trespasses and sins. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, we live dead in our trespasses and sins, or we live by faith in the Son of God. And it is an either-or. There is no third option. Either dead in trespasses and sins, or alive by faith. Continuing in sin is absurd, because you're no longer a slave to sin. He who has died, not physically but spiritually, is freed from sin. Look at verses 8, and ten, 8 through 10. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We even just died with Christ. We live with him. Jesus' resurrection proves that he has victory over death. Acts chapter 2, verse 24 reads, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep a hold of him. The end of verse 9. Death is no longer master over him. Verse 10. He died to sins once for all. And we're with him. It is, to continue in sin is absurd. Because you are intimately connected to an all-powerful God who displayed that power in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Continuing in sin is absurd. Because you are dead in sin, you are identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You're living a new life in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. And you are intimately connected to an all-powerful God. Gaining 
freedom from the power of sin is possible. Here's what you must know. Continuing in sin will not be rewarded. And continuing in sin is absurd. Beyond that, here's what you must do to gain freedom from the power of sin. In verse 11 through 14, Apostle Paul gives us four commands to be obeyed. And from these four commands, imperatives, come two initiatives that will help us to gain freedom from sin. The imperatives are, and you may want to mark them, in verse 11, in my Bible, it reads, consider. That's the verb that is an imperative. It's command. Or some translations will have reckon or count yourselves. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Romans, suggests that this word is one of the most important words in the book of Romans. Paul uses it 19 times in this letter. And if one does not know what he means, what it means, he or she will not understand Romans. It's a commercial term, which means to impute to one's account. The the idea is we are to reflect on our position in Christ. Consider. Ponder. Develop personal conviction. First imperative is consider in verse 11. Next imperative in verse 12 is let reign. That's the verb. Which actually is part of a prohibition here, isn't it? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Third imperative in verse 13. Go on presenting. Again, another prohibition. And do not go on presenting the members of your body. Instruments of unrighteousness. And later in that same verse, in verse 13, you get present again is the fourth imperative. The imperatives really support the directives that Paul is giving us. They act like restatements, emphasizing our responsibilities, the things that we must do if we want to be free from the power of sin. You know, Adam and Eve had two sons. One was named Cain, is the older. The other was named Abel. Both of them brought offerings to God in Genesis chapter 4. Abel's was determined by God to be acceptable. Cain's was not. And Cain was not happy about that. And so God came to Cain, and this is what he said. Why are you angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Will you be accepted if you do what is right? In fact, that's not a question. You will be accepted if you do what is right. 
But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Beloved, notice verse 11 here in Romans chapter 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Sin is eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master by considering yourself dead to sin. That requires a change in the way in which we see ourselves in relation to sin. We need to think differently. Stop letting sin control you. Learn to say no to sin. Listen as I read these sobering words from Colossians chapter 3. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy for greedy people for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world because of these sins the anger of god is coming but now is the time to get rid of anger rage malicious behavior slander and dirty language don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become more and more like him. Don't miss the replacement principle there. Taking off and putting on. It's never just taking off. There's a putting on. Little by little, every day. Think differently. It's a must. Verse 13, Romans chapter 6. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your member as instruments of righteousness 
to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. Stop giving yourself permission to sin. Do not keep on. That's the tense of the verb there. Do not keep on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Practice saying no to the sinful appetites and desires that we all have. Live differently. Think differently and live differently. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the, right at the very beginning of that practical section of the book of Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There you have it. Presenting your body as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, live differently, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently. And I am not for a moment suggesting that this is easy. It's anything but. In fact, the Bible refers to this progression, making steps in the sanctification process as a spiritual battle. A battle that Cain lost. Sin mastered him. And he took his brother's life. Beloved, the stakes have never been higher. Gaining freedom from the power of sin is possible. Here's what you must do. Think differently and live differently. And it all begins at the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. For apart from him, we can do nothing. Behavioral modification is only temporary. You will not win that battle. Be free. Be free. In Christ, it is possible. You and I have been set free from the power of sin. Be free. Father, thank you for sending Jesus.
a demonstration of your own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of his sacrifice and the accompanying accomplishment, we can by faith trust him alone for our salvation and be set free, set free from the power of sin in our lives. May we be committed to thinking and living differently so that little by little, for the remaining years of our lives, we are gradually putting sin to death in our bodies, becoming more and more like Jesus as we become instruments of righteousness by the power of the Spirit for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.